Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 258 of the Speaking Club podcast. I want to open this show with a quote from actor, screenwriter and director Alan Alder. Your assumptions are your windows on the world. Scrub them off every once in a while or the light won't come in. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hello! How is your week going? Did you have a listen to that first quick tip episode on comic timing? If you did, let me know what you thought. And if you haven't, then go over and have a listen to that. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it and get a great little tip for your speaking uh, to take it to the next level with a bit of humour. And that show came from an audience question. And I thought, well, if they want to know, then other people will. So... If you have a question about speaking, storytelling, pitching, talk structure, humour or performance, then do let me know. No question is a stupid one. And as I said, chances are, if you want to know, then so will other people. And you can reach out to me on Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn at SarahArcher15. Okay, let's get on with today's show. Now, as a speaker, you are using stories to affect your audience. And at the bare minimum, a story will entertain. But when you begin to infuse that story with emotions, fears and desires that your audience shares and can connect with, then it becomes engaging at the next level. However, if we truly want our audience to shift into action then our stories must also show transformation. And this is the type of story that I teach speakers to use in their talks. So when I heard about Manda Scott's new take on transformational storytelling for writers, I wanted to get her on the show to find out more for me and for you. Manda has had an interesting journey from veterinary surgeon to best-selling award-winning novelist to founder of Accidental Gods, the movement and podcast, and the throughtopian genre of writing. And her own story is so fascinating. And she shares some experiences in the show that you might find challenging because they feel so far removed from convention. But then, as Manda points out in the show, our conventions are a very recent thing in the history of the world. So what we hold to be true has only been true for a very short space of time. So open up your mind, have a listen and see what's there for you. Because I believe there's so much value and importance in what she shares. And if you want to effect real change as a speaker, then this show is for you. Right, let's go. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Amanda Scott. Thank you. It's a real honour to be here. I'm extremely grateful for the invitation. You're more than welcome. Now, you are 
celebrated writer, but you have got a lovely sounding voice as well, which is which is good because you're also a podcast host. So, uh, yes, very yeah. silky, very yeah. nice. Great Little face for radio. That's the thing. <laughs> uh, don't ever put me on television, but radio is fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, thank you for coming on. I've got so much to ask you. You have a fascinating uh life and experience um and i could have asked you hundreds of questions um i tried to come up with the ones that i think will showcase what you can offer and also in in terms of what you've done and and the value for my audience but um let's kick off with with something about how you got to where you are today so could you share maybe the three to five key moments in life that brought you to where you are and what you do today? Yes, thank you. A brilliant question. Um, so we'll skip over being born, which was kind <laughs> of inevitable and obvious and, and not dying yet. I will, we'll leave those two. The first really big life-changing moment that I've spoken about quite a lot, but probably not in this context, was my father took my brother and I to the brochs in Scotland. Do you know what a broch is? It's, a, it's an ancient prehistoric it, we call it a monument now, but of course it was a living space. It's, I think they're about 30 to 50 foot diameter. They're, they're shaped like a beehive, so they're a dome, but they're double skinned at the bottom. So I think it's seven foot gap in between at the bottom and then gradually narrowing at the top. So, and they're in the north of Scotland. The one that I went to was at Elgin opposite, uh, Glen Elg, sorry, opposite Sky. And so in the bottom, in the winter, the cattle would be in there and then there would be a ceiling that was the floor of the next level and then there'd be hay and then there'd be grain and the, and, and, some, and the people lived in the middle with this amazing insulation around the outside. And so it was the first time that I had really encountered the ancestors of my land in a way that was really impactful. I was nine or ten and I had just read Rosemary Sutcliffe's Eagle of the Ninth, which was a hugely impactful book, partly because it introduced me to the Romans as an invading force and to Scotland as having been separate. And and the story is of a young man whose father has lost the Legion's eagle and it's a great disgrace. And so he's trying to rehabilitate his father's name and he takes his slave, who's um, the, the barbarian savage Britain, up into Scotland trying to hunt down the eagle. And there is a point where he knows this tribe that he visits has got it, the tribe of the seal people. And there are the priests of the horned moon god and they go into a hut and they let drop the goat skin curtain and you never see what happens in there. And I was desperate to know what are they doing? Because I grew up in a little Presbyterian village in Scotland and you know, twitching neck curtains and you had to go to church every Sunday until I was old enough to explain exactly why I did not want to do that. And, and here was my heritage. And then I went to the Bronx. It's like these people lived that life. These are the people. And, and yeah, I was a thousand years up, but, but essentially it was the same culture. It was the tribal pre-invasion, pre-Pax Romana, pre the whole culture of profit and knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing. I, I say quite often these days that we are in the dying days of the Roman Empire because the, what the Romans broke at that point was something that was critical and crucial to who we are as humanity for the people of Britain. And so... Being the Brox was life-changing um, and it, I think, emphasised the life-changingness of reading Eagle of the Ninth and the rest of my life really has been devoted to working out what could have gone on behind that goatskin curtain with the priest of the Horn Moon God. 
and and bringing it to a place where it feels real. So that's number one. Sorry, I'll be quicker. So the second and most obvious one was what led me to change. So I was a veterinary surgeon. I was, in fact, actually a veterinary anaesthetist. Surgeons get upset if I say I was a surgeon. I was an anaesthetist, which I think is a more complicated thing because you're taking animals very close to the gateway of death and then bringing them back again. Surgeons would argue. Um, but anyway, I, I was a full time vet and I was walking my lurchers on Newmarket Heath and uh, the older and faster of them put up a hair. And I was I had started writing at that point. I was working basically full time and writing in between. And I'd written crime novels, one of which had just been shortlisted for the Edgar. The first one had been shortlisted for the Orange. So I was doing quite well at writing crime novels. And I was thinking ahead to the next book and the dog caught the hair, which, you know, frankly, she didn't catch very many. She wasn't actually very good. I thought, you know, hair sacrifice, that's fine. But then she brought it back and it turned out it was lactating. It was a lactating doe. And hairs are sacred. By then I was studying shamanic practice and really getting to grips with engaging with the old gods of this land and hairs are sacred to the old gods of this land. And so I knew that the kits were out there. You know, Newmarket Heath in the summer where the, the grass is basically waist high. And if I didn't find them, they were going to die. So I, I spent the afternoon looking and I didn't find them. And one of the key things that I believe then and still actually believe now is that the gods will whisper and then they will speak and then they will shout. And if you ignore the whisper and the speak and it gets to the point where the gods are shouting at you, once you've got the relationship that says, basically, I will ask you questions and I will listen to your answers and then I will do what I'm told. And if they get to the point where they're shouting at you, you're going to wish you'd listen when they'd whispered. And several sacred things dying because I was basically walking around my brain in neutral thinking about the next book was was getting pretty close to a shout as far as I could see. So I did uh, in very short terms, I did a vision quest. Let's not, I mean, we can go into detail if you want, but we don't need to. There was a nearby forest, Thetford Forest. There was a hazel tree at that point. It's been cut down since, which is terribly sad, but it was huge. I could not have, six of me could not have got our arms around it. And I sat underneath that, holding the question, what do you want of me? Which is the only sensible question, because it's obviously not what I'm doing, but trying to hold open to that. And And I'll keep this very short because the answer that came after a degree of stuff was to write the write the history of Boudicca. And I had made a commitment to do that in ceremony about five or six years before, but I, I'd always, in my head, I'd got the code out of it. It was always going to be when I was a good enough writer. And that's always at least five books away <laughs> um, because I was writing crime novels. I knew nothing about history. I'm not an archeologist. I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not a historian. I didn't know anything, but I knew that the end of the Boudican era was the end of the shamanic past in Britain because the Druids were our shamanic culture. So um, I'll keep this very short. That led to the Boudicca books. There's, there's, a, there's a bunch of stuff in between, but essentially that life-changing moment led me to stop writing crime novels and lose my publisher at that point because they didn't want me to change genre and ended up with Transworld Random House, now Penguin Random House, um, writing the Boudicca series. So that would be number two. Um, there's been a series of things that are sacred to me dying at crucial points when I need to listen. So the next one and the big one was I started teaching shamanic practice because I, I wrote the first Boudicca book, went around the country. Those were the days when you would do a, a book tour, which yeah. nobody does now, but you know, actual people would turn out in an actual evening to listen to you on an actual book tour. And we, it took three weeks, we went all around the country and we started in Cambridge, I think, and came back to somewhere near there. And 
so you sign all the books and go around the country and come back. And there were people in the queue and I think, no, I recognize you. I sent your book already. And they said, yes, because you told us that the dreaming was in these books and it was all this book, you know, the first book. And my rule for the first book was that all of the dreaming in this book I have either seen or done. And and so it was all, you know, you can do this now. It's just I set it 2000 years ago to get it past my publishers, because if I had said I want to write about shamanic practice you know, in the present day, I would still be sticking my hand up horses back ends. So um, <laughs> so and they're going, yeah, but, you know, we've read it now and we still don't know what to do. Really? It's all in there. You just need to look for it. Uh, you know, it's hidden in the story because otherwise how would I get it published? It is there. And and they were like, no, we really don't get this. Like, oh, God. OK. So I went back and did the necessary work and, and the instruction I was to teach. And I had definitely no intention of teaching shamanic practice. Um, but I started up and I thought I would do a couple of courses. Um, and that was 2004. And I am now handing over the 15 or 16 courses a year to my senior apprentice um, because I realized it takes people at least 15 years to get all the way around and the people who would be starting now I, I would be very old by the time they get to the end so I need to start passing it on so the baton is passing to an amazing woman who's taking over so but anyway April of 2016 I was teaching this was pre-COVID still teaching in person um, and I wake up about six o'clock on the Sunday morning of a weekend and I teach with a teaching altar which has gates. You really don't need to know the detail, but I go into the altar and I check around each gate station and check that the holders of the gates are okay and therefore the people in the, who are technically and theoretically and possibly even actually dreaming in the altar are okay. I go in the east, I go clockwise, so I get all oh, three quarters of the way around, get to the north. Hi guys, it's me. Um, and at that point, my main one of my two main guides was the horned god who stands for me in the north. And my spiritual practice at that time would be that I would go for a walk with the dog and I would call in that guide and the other guide. And, and in an ideal morning, I would walk with them both such that they were looking through my eyes and hearing through my ears. And I was hearing them, hearing through my ears and looking through my eyes. So I was beginning to be able to see the web of life in a way that I couldn't otherwise see it. So I get to the God that I've been working with for, by that point, 20 years, easily, and check everything, everything's fine, okay, about to move on, and the God says, and um, and I'm leaving. No, no, you can't, I'm teaching a weekend, you can't, you know, I can't, I can't leave, I have to stay with the altar, students, you know, not safe, and he goes, yeah, that's why I'm leaving now. No, was this something I said? Have I done something wrong? I was, I was broken, it was six o'clock in the morning, and I had till the students started to get myself back and I spent the entire time trying to negotiate, you know, what have I said? What have I done? How can I make this different? No, you, you can't leave because I say you can't leave and he's going, I'm a God and I'm leaving. Like, no, you can't do this. I, I can't function without, I can't teach the circle without you. And he goes, oh, yeah, you've got help. You've got the rest of the circle. You don't need me. I do. I really, really, honestly, trust me. I, I, and he just went. I would have been considerably less distraught if I'd got home and found my partner packing to leave. I mean, I would be pretty distraught, but not this level of distraught. So I got up the next morning and phoned the friend that I'd been, had already arranged to walk the dogs with and said, Look, I need the hill on my own. I'm really sorry. I, I, I'm having a problem. You'd have to walk somewhere else and, and not with me. Um, and I had a hill that at that point was the hill that I would go and sit on if I needed to do a sit out. And stupid though it sounds and is, I think I was going to go on my plan in my panic was to go and sit on that hill and basically refuse to eat and drink until the God came back. You know, I'll just squeam and squeam until I'm thick kind of infantile behavior. Um, and instead I was walking 
near it. And I didn't at that point work a lot with red kites, but there was a line of red kites along a particular path that I'd never really bothered to go on before in this huge, big area of wood in Shropshire. So I took that path. You know, sometimes it's it's useful to listen to the world when it's speaking to you. And I followed along and I got to this amazing, beautiful avenue of beech trees that were either side of a ridge with the ground falling away on the other side. And it was about dawn, the sun was coming in. Um, and I thought, God, this is gorgeous. Well, I'm glad I found this. And halfway along, there was a dead hind right across the path and she was still warm and she was in the process of giving birth. The, the young were, the calf was halfway out, the fawn, and she'd been attacked by dogs, I think, because um, she had bite marks all over. And she was definitely dead. You know, I'm a veterinary anaesthetist. I checked, that was the first thing. And I just completely disintegrated. And what we teach the students is if in, if in doubt, or even not in doubt, there are two questions that you ask, well, what can I do for you? And what can you teach me? And I put one hand on, on her brow and one hand on her heart. And I just, and my dog was just going to spare it. It's fine because mother is, is fragmented. And she doesn't know what to do, but she eventually came and lay down. And I just sat for, till the sun was a long way up, just repeating those over and over and over again, because it felt just like the hair. This is something, and it's young, that have died right here. And I was brought here. And, and I don't know why, why did you have to die? And in the end, I, she stood up in a lot of the things that I work with have human form and animal form. So she stood up as a, not the physicality of her, the energy of her stood up as a deer and then became a woman and said, um, I need to take the place of the God in the North, but you're too wedded to that energy. You need to understand what it is to be a woman and what it is to be mother, because I'm you know, kind of halfway along the boundary where it is to be male and female, and I never any intention of going anywhere close to motherhood. That would have been a total disaster. So you need, you need to take me into the north and you need to do the work now. Why did you not just tell me that? Why did you have to die? And she said, because you wouldn't have listened. Uh, okay, yeah, you're probably right. So that was really one of the biggest of the, you really need to do what you're told now, Scott. Go away, do the work. Um, and in the process of doing the work, I was trying to, th there was obviously something that I needed to be doing that wasn't what I was doing. I was still writing the Rome books, but I was coming to the end of them. What next? Oh, no, I wasn't by then. I was writing, I'd just finished Into the Fire and I was starting Treacherous Spies. But it clearly wasn't, this is not going to change the world. And I had ideas of, I went to London to see about doing another course and it just wasn't for me. And I was on the train back meditating and, and two words came and Devon and human spirit. And it definitely came from that place in the, in the circle. So I got home and I Googled those and discovered this place called Schumacher that had a course running called warrior. Oh no, it was warriors, spirit and Devon. Those were the three words that came warriors of the human spirit. And it's at Schumacher, which is at Dartington, which is in Devon. So I phoned them up and said, I know this is happening next week and it's really unlikely, but do you happen to have a space? And they went, uh, yeah, actually, we just had a, a cancellation. Do you want to come? Yeah, I'm on my way. I, it was a two week course and I hated every second of it. It just wasn't my thing. I got into the car park and there were more Jaguar SUVs and, and Porsches than I've ever seen in one place at one time. And I thought oh, I just got to the wrong place. Right. Um, and it was all shell executives and things who who'd kind of hooked into this thing as their way of doing their good bit for the planet and then going back home and running Shell again and, and me and that. And they kept, all kept going, why are you here? And I'm going, I have absolutely no idea. But it introduced me to Schumacher. And then on the way home, I went to talk to Matt McCartney, who's, who's a good friend and, 
um, another person who's really strong in the shamanic movement. Um, and I was telling him, I had just at that point really got into the fact that we were being lied to economically. And I was running a conference called Breaking the Austerity Myth. I thought if I could get the whole of Britain to understand that austerity was a myth and that we were being lied to, then everybody would realize that the government was broken and we would change everything. And he said, have you told the guys at Schumacher running the regenerative economics course about this? I thought, there's a regenerative economics course at Schumacher, really? Oh, and then everything just went ka-ching, 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 everything lined up. And I found them and went, look, I know this starts in September and you closed in March and now it's June, but you have a place? And they went, well, oddly enough, we've just had a cancellation. Do you want the place? Um, and then I was like, okay, let me look into, oh, it costs that much. I haven't got that much money. And then my father died. Okay, I'm going on the course. I'll borrow the money because I'll, I'll get a little bit from dad. I get, I get it now. I am definitely going on this course. And that was totally life-changing. I, I live where I live now. And I think the podcast arose and, you know, I'm, all of the things that I'm doing now, other than the shamanic work, the foundations came from Schumacher. Wow. That was quite long. I'm sorry. I tried to keep it brief. It's fine. I, th- I think it's, um, there's a whole lot to sort of just unpack a little bit there. There'll be some stuff that my audience isn't familiar with. Some people may be. It's fascinating. I found it absolutely fascinating. So first of all, just briefly, if you, if you don't mind, could you share what a shaman is? What is shamanic practice? Yes, what is shamanic practice? Okay, because the first thing to say is I do not pretend to be a shaman. I don't think you can be if you haven't grown up in a shamanic culture. I know there are Western people who do say that they are, but I would strongly recommend that you run away from them because I think they're delusional. But so shamanic practice is the oldest form of spirituality on the planet. If we, I ha, this is a brief aside, but I have mapped out in my head and I'm trying to get an uh, animator to do it for me. If you know any animators, I want someone to do it. Mapping the 300,000 years of human evolution from early modern humans to where we are now onto a 30 year lifespan, just to give us a sense of the scale and perspective. So that's basically 10,000 years is one year. For the first 29 years, let's assume that this person who's 30 was born on the 1st of January. First 29 years of that person's life, they grew up in Africa. And then if we're talking about a person in Britain now, they gradually crossed various land bridges that don't exist now to get to Britain. They were forager hunters. It's only in the last year that agriculture arose. And actually in Britain, we know now that somewhere around, let's say, starting in January, April of that year, We had a play with farming. We decided it was actually too much like hard work. And we went back to gathering hazelnuts for our main forage crop for the winter for for a couple of months. And we went back to agriculture, the tribal structure, the spirituality somewhere, you know, in those 29 and a half years, we evolved a highly complex spiritual path. For 25,000 years, we painted caves in southern France and Spain. 25,000 years of a single art form. You know, most art forms in the in modern culture last a couple of years, if you're lucky. But for generation after generation, we understood how to connect to the web of life. If we're still going back to our 30 years, 300,000 mapped onto 30, the Roman invasion is on the last day of October, shall we, in our calendar. Hastings happens pretty much the end of November. The Tudors are somewhere around the middle of December. And the Industrial Revolution happens after Christmas. The burning of fossil fuels that is causing our current crisis is happening the last three days, actually slightly less, of, of this time. And we have burned more fossil fuels 
we've burned over half the fossil half the oil we've ever burned since 1995 which in this map is like half an hour before midnight on the night of our 30th year so if we take that mapping shamanic practice is the spirituality of the first 29 years and 10 months of of those of us who live in in Britain it's a spirit it's animism everything has life everything has spirit and the key point is that with training people can connect to that web of life in order to ask for help and beyond that so the key teaching of shamanic practice is that this reality even the you know four three dimensions plus time is only a tiny fraction of all possible realities and that with training we can then step out of this reality into the infinity of all other possible realities in order to ask for help and that's the crucial bit we're not just spacing out to escape we're going to ask for help and that requires I have a list of eight things that I teach the students but we'll skip over but the key ones are we know how to go we know how to discern what we whether what we meet has our best interests at heart or whether it's just out for lunch basically and we are the lunch or a neutral somewhere in between um, we know what kinds of questions we can appropriately ask and we know how to ask them we know how to hear the answers we know how to bring the answers back in a form that is useful and then we know how to act it out in the world and where i am trying to get my students to know is that we can do that in real time we're not just doing a journey or or dreaming and and it only happens then we're trying to connect into the web of life on a continuous basis because i think that's what our birthright is and i think it's the only thing that'll get us through the pinch point that's coming does that is that enough of an explanation to make it rational Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's something that uh, I'm getting more familiar. And I think a lot of people are getting more familiar with. And I think almost the I don't you've probably heard this before. The pandemic was, you know, some people call it the Great Reset or whatever. Since mm. that point, a lot of people are wanting to get more in touch with their intuition, recognizing that yeah. we are part of everything and everything is part of us in a, in a, in a simple yes. way. Yes. So that it that is the way that I understand it and very much you know I'm, I've probably talked about it on the podcast a little bit it's a journey that I started maybe I don't know three years ago and is something that I'm trying to do I've been so much and I think so many of us have been in our heads and mm. almost out of touch with our bodies even let alone anything else in the world totally out of touch and so for me this is something that I'm certainly trying to do and I find you know all of that stuff fascinating yeah. I'll have a side conversation about, them. but uh, yeah, and I think that if if there was a way to sum it up that people might relate to, in 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 another term, is just getting more in touch with your intuition and and the world. But the answers are out there. It's just that we often don't hear them or we don't tap into them. Yes, yes, we don't trust them, or we project our own wants and fears over the top of them. And and so most of the training, the time that it takes for people to get to the point where they can do this effortlessly, is trusting the real stuff and learning to recognize when you're just splattering your own ego over the top so yeah that's the toughest thing isn't it <laughs> making that distinction yeah it's hard totally and particularly when we live in a culture that has taught us to emphasize our our ego and our head mind pretty much from the day we were born mm -hmm. that's why i don't think anyone raised in a west, the west can be a genuine shaman because i think you need to have grown up in a culture that allowed heart mind to balance head mind from the start or you know i suppose in 
modern neuro linguistic terms that would be right brain and left brain but anyway I, th I it's really hard for western people to learn how to let go mm. it's it's a fascinating uh thing and once you open this door it, there's so much more that becomes mm. you become aware of totally so uh yes but let's let's move on and just and thank you for sharing that and i think you know i know you made it brief but it's it sounds like it's been a fascinating journey your life and and sort of you know i i absolutely one one more thing that i wanted to say is that this 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 kind of rule of 3 if you like that you've you've mentioned about if you if you keep ignoring it <laughs> then i'm going to like you can't you get to the point where something something that you can't ignore and and having that perspective of it's always happening for you hmm. however bad it seems i think is something that comes across from your story as well yeah yeah everything everything is there for a reason it's just not obvious why to begin with. Yeah. yeah fascinating okay cool so let me then bring you to the term accidental gods now you've got a podcast of the same name could you share what that means and where that fits in the context of the the journey you've just sort of outlined yes thank you so accidental gods was first a membership and is a membership program the podcast arose out of that and it came i'm pretty sure it was eo wilson but i actually haven't checked but one of the big modern philosophers has a phrase along the lines that we have Paleolithic emotions, modern humanity has Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and the technology of gods. And that's really not a winning combination. And, and, and working forward from that, we are the first generation, really, that has the capacity to create the, a full mass extinction. We're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction. And the last one was 64 million years ago, and it wasn't created by the, the kind of pink hairless biped. Um, and at that, you know, the last mass extinction, 3% of species survived. And that was things very, very, very deep in the Marianas Trench, like seven miles down, and bacteria and fungi and viruses. And it certainly wasn't the large pink, you know, things with eyelashes and red blood cells. We didn't mean to, that's why accidentally, you know, none of us grew up thinking, you know, I'm going to be part of the generation that could finish all life on Earth. Yay. But we're here and we have that capacity and it's we need urgently to get out of the Paleolithic emotion state into something that's more advanced. So Accidental Gods membership arose out of yet another thing dying, but we'll leave that um, a, a whole set of visions that arose at a winter solstice, 2018 winter solstice, and then evolved through 2019 as the questions that came to, that were presented to me and the visions that came at that solstice were that I needed to start teaching at scale because my teaching of the shamanic work is one-to-one -one in small groups because I don't think it's safe otherwise. Um, and I had a vision of the earth as, a, as that kind of blue pearl floating in space, you know, the photograph from the moon of the earth. And all around it were millions and millions, millions of very fine threads, all interlocking and crossing over. And every crossing point was a node of consciousness. And some of those nodes were human, but most of them weren't. And it was the first really clear visual image I'd had rather than a felt sense of the web of life. And it took me a while to put together the sets of visions that came at that particular set. But what evolved over the year was that I, that 
I began to understand the nature of conscious evolution, which is to say the evolution of our consciousness consciously chosen. Mostly evolution just happens and it happens slowly. You know, the giraffe gets a slightly longer neck and reaches the higher branches so it survives a bit better. So the next giraffe gets a bit longer and and or the lion gets a bit faster. You know, everything it's generational and it's slow. Conscious evolution, I believe, and, and I didn't make this up, I'm riffing off other people's stuff, but it's if we actually began to use all of our brain, left side and right side, and all of the all of our neurophysiology in a way that wasn't harnessed to our basest instincts, the kind of thing that Twitter, you know, emphasizes every day, then we have the capacity potentially to emerge into a different system. Is the concept of emergence something that your podcast works with? No, I think that might be worth explaining. Okay. Alrighty. So let's take a step back. There are two ways of looking at things. Some there's things that are complicated and there are things that are complex. Complicated things are linear. They're mostly made by people. So a Boeing 747 is complicated. There are 6,000 different parts. But if I gave you a big aircraft hanger and 6,000 boxes and labels and, and a really good instructions kit and a spanner, you could put together a Boeing 747. First, first iteration might not fly too well, but you know we know that it works because there are Boeing 747s in the sky. They all look pretty much the same. If you're a pilot and you get in one and you get in the next one, they're, you know, it'll work basically the same. And it probably doesn't work like this, but fundamentally, if you turn the, the, the steering wheel to the left, it goes left. You turn the steering wheel to the right, it goes right. Put in the brake, it slows down a bit, put on the accelerator. It's, it's linear and it's highly predictable. People like linear, highly predictable things. We don't like uncertainty. Almost all biological systems are complex, which is to say they are not linear and they are not predictable. And there is theory of emergence from complexity. So if we imagine an S curve, a hysteresis curve, your standard, you know, slowly, slowly, slowly goes up into the singularity and then curves off at the top. Ilya Prigogine got his Nobel Prize for looking at emergence from complex systems. And he said, after a certain level of complexity, it reaches a system goes up that steep bit and then it reaches maximal complexity after which it either collapses into extinction or it emerges into a new system and the rules of the new system are wholly not predictable unpredictable from the old system so the the classic example that we use is a caterpillar if you came from somewhere in outer space and someone gave you a little furry caterpillar and said look at each leaves it says there munch 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 happy little caterpillar wriggle 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 and what do you think it's going to be when it grows up? And you go, mm, bigger caterpillar, maybe? And, and they go, no, look, it turns into a chrysalis. It winds its little silk, turns it into a little shell. And inside, it just completely dissolves. It becomes DNA soup. So person from outer space going, oh, that's really interesting. What do you think it's going to be now? No idea. And what we know is now that within this DNA soup emerges things that we call imaginal cells. And in the beginning, they are destroyed because they're different. But then more arise and more arise and then they clump together in little imaginal islands and then they become imaginal organs and then they all get together and and then emerges a butterfly and person from outer space would not have predicted a red admiral from the caterpillar there is no way so it's emerged into being butterfly it's a whole new system and and the new system is not predictable from the old system so the theory of conscious evolution 
to which I subscribe, again, I didn't make this up, but I'm just joining a number of dots that other people have made, is we have the capacity as a species. We've gone in many ways, technologically and particularly conceptually. When we were Boudican era tribes people, we could talk to each other. We devolved language. Uh, we have a certain gene that, that shifted and allowed us to make consonants when most other species make vowels and we could then make quite complex language. I think we lost a lot of dreaming ability at that point, but that's a separate conversation. Um, we could write. The, we know that the Brudican era, the, the, the tribes could write. They could write in Greek. They just chose not to write down their Druidic lore because writing it down fixes it in ways that are not good if it's a spiritual practice. Um, so you could technically, you could write something on a bit of wood and, you know, hand it to someone and they could carry it and give it to somebody else and then they would know what was written on the bit of wood. That was the extent of our capacity to send messages. Fast forward a few hundred years and we get telegraph, which is, you know, capacity to then send Morse code across the ocean. That's amazing. Um, and then not very many hundred years later, we get radio and then we get television and then we get the internet. And now you could be in Australia and I could be talking to you in real time. We can now share ideas in real time at scale that could be 10,000 of you on a Zoom call on the other side of the planet and I could still be sharing ideas. That's, that's a hysteresis curve going into the singularity. We must be, we are now, humanity is, every cell in our body is a complex thing. The organs that they make are complex. The person that we become is complex. That's why modern medicine does so badly, because modern medicine fixes complicated things and expects them all to be linear and predictable. So when you've got acute stuff or you're young and it is on the whole linear and predictable, that's fine. And the older you get, the less competent modern medicine becomes at sorting stuff out because it's still functioning in a linear mindset. We are complex beings. When we aggregate into communities of place, purpose or passion, we become hyper complex and the global culture now is a hyper complex system. It must be nearing that point of chaos within which it will either descend into collapse and extinction or it will emerge into the new, a new system that we can't predict. But what we can do, I believe, and, and this was what arose out of the 2018 visions was endeavor to bring as many people as possible to the edge of full awareness so that out of that i'm thinking there will be a critical mass of people if we can get a critical mass of people really connected into the web of life asking what do you want to me and responding to that in real time we have a chance that the emergence to the new system happens rather than the collapse into extinction and I think it might be our only chance, but it's certainly at this moment when I wake every morning and ask, what do you want of me? What was what wanted of me is make this happen. Do your very best to get this to happen. So we set up the Accidental Gods membership program. My aim was single woman with two kids under the age of 10 working, should still be able to do this. And we worked through, we worked, Faith and I worked flat out through 2018 to kind of work out what to do and how to do it and get it all. And it was getting to about September and Faith was saying, look, I don't think we can possibly launch at the end of the year. Could we, could we put it through into next year? You know, May, Beltane, we could do Beltane. And I would go up the hill and sit and ask and they'd go, nope, it has to be the 1st of January. I come down and go, I'm really sorry. It just has to be the 1st of January. And I, I don't know why either. And then 
we got it out on the 1st of January. We'd gone through one iteration of people going, this is way too complex. We don't understand what you're asking us to do and we can't do it. And we fixing it and then the pandemic hit. And it was just in time then to have a lot more people going, we're desperate and us going, well, this is our best offer. You know, come and join us if you can. So then we'd got that moving. And the first nine episodes of the podcast are me describing the exactly what I just said to you, but in much more detail <laughs> and the neuropsychology behind what I'm trying to do, the neurophysiology, the neuroscience, because I wrote my thesis at Schumacher on the neuroscience of language. And I really wanted to, you know, this is where our paleolithic emotions arise from. If we know that we can engage more consciously. Um, and then I thought, oh, well, let's just talk to some other people. That's a nice idea. And I thought maybe we'd do half a dozen and four years down the line, there's one every week and I could easily do one a day if I had the time and the money um, of people trying to find the people who are at the leading edge of change, of, of making this, of creating the new paradigm, because the world that we grew up in, you and I, is falling apart faster than I had ever expected to see it. It's gone and we need to help people get their heads around the fact, A, that it's gone and B, that it is still possible to create a future that we would be proud to leave behind to the generations that come after us. Whether we have kids or not, I want seven generations down the line to look back at us and go, God, yes, they did it. You know, they left it way too late. They made so many catastrophic mistakes, but when it really mattered, they got their act together, they got a vision, they made it happen, and our lives are really good as a result of that. There we go, that was a bit long too, I'm sorry. No, it's brilliant. Are you scared that it won't happen? So interesting question. Um, no, I probably no, because that's not my business. So with the shamanic work, I I got quite early on, particularly when I started teaching people going, well, how does this work? Yeah, I've got no idea. My, it's not my job to know how it works. It's my job to make it work and to know how to make it work really well. Um, and it's you know, this is evidence based spirituality. We if we do something and it works, we do it again. If we do something, it doesn't work, then we don't do it again. And so my job at the moment is to hook into the web of life to the best of my ability and ask what do you want and respond to the answers in real time and it's not my business to know what's coming i mean it is up to a point i'm, I'm looking at the world and i'm listening to simon michaud and looking at you know we hit 19 rolling terawatts has to get down to five and we've got materials flow crisis coming and probably not gonna be able to feed people this summer all of that but how to fix it I just need to do the bit that only I can do and do it as well as I can do it. And provided I am doing that, I can relax into, give responsibility to the rest of the web of life to do its bit, bring as many people along as I can. And then if it doesn't work, it's not because I tried. If I put bandwidth and energy into being scared, then I'm using it up from doing stuff that's useful. Also, I have a really strong image that comes quite often of I, I absolutely believe that the heart mind of the universe, whatever you want to call it, is raw compassion. Quite plainly, when it gets to the level of planet Earth, there are some really, really nasty things that happen, which, you know, I've got quite twisted on the path from raw compassion. But fundamentally, there are two forces. There's love and there's fear. And I can either connect into the web of life and give my absolute heartbreaking, heart exploding gratitude for being alive every moment and let that flow through me out into the web, or I can constrict into being afraid. And out of fear arises anger, and out of anger arises, you know, hurt people hurt people. The, the damage of the world arises because people have given way to their fear. And I have a choice in any moment of I can do the one or the other. 
and it is a choice. So, I, you know, while I can, I'm choosing the awe and the wonder and the gratitude. And I guess there might come a time when I'm so terrified that I give way to the fear, but I'm not there yet. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant answer. Thank you. And and I guess, and I think you're right. I think most of our problems have come because we've tapped too much into the fear and not into the to the compassion and the and and the love. And and I you might have already done this, but if I had to get you know, how would you sum up in 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 one sentence that mission that you're on as a result of everything that you're doing with with accidental gods? Is it that you want to bring everyone to the point where they're able to tap into that that consciousness yeah there is there yes that but there's also the to get there what i'm realizing now and we haven't quite got to there but the utopian mission which is to bring everybody into a place where the stories that they tell themselves of themselves to themselves about themselves are of the flourishing future that is possible because if we don't you know where you put your energy is where you get and so i want to create that in a way that feels real to people and feels you know that they're looking forward to a world that they want to get to and can see a route to get there i think that i'm understanding now in the last year year and a half that that now is is as important as bringing about the conscious evolution because what i discovered with accidental gods is just because I spend all day every day doing this doesn't mean everybody else can do that. And the single women under with two kids under the age of 10 quite quickly had both those kids at home during lockdown. And it's hard. You know, it isn't thinking about doing this isn't the same as doing it. Mm. So I have a core group of people now who are really committed and are really doing this. But there are a lot of people who come in and look at it and go, oh, no, that's way too hard work. <laughs> Sorry, can't do it. Um, whereas I think if we can get the Thrutopian narratives moving, then it will feel less like hard work and it will give a reason to be doing it that isn't just i think i will feel a bit better about myself if i do this brilliant and and i'm going to pick up on two things there which will lead us into this utopian um concept a little bit more so first of all you are probably familiar this is very fashionable at the moment but in a in a sense it's kind of related to part of that so this concept of manifestation so the the idea that I know you're going to sigh, I knew you were, but just bear with me. I know what manifestation is. Yes. <laughs> okay. But painting the picture, getting people to be able to see what it is that we're aiming to create makes that much more powerful. And essentially, a lot of people will be familiar with manifestation, which is about the ability to to accept, accept that it's happened, that it's already done, and sort of tapping into that finished yes. vision of it so that it is more likely to come into being. So you're coming from a place of gratitude for what's happened rather than a place of lack for something that hasn't. So that's the first thing. Go on. Sorry, Amanda. I, I, yes. I, I, so I'm teaching what we're calling the intention intensive within Accidental Gods exactly on this. But what we need to move from, because what worries me a lot about this, there is there are corners of the internet where you can access the places where Donald Trump was manifesting in order to get to be president of the United States. I think you have to be very careful what you are manifesting and where the desire comes from, because I do think that setting a clear, clean intention is the single most powerful human agency on the planet. But deciding what it is, if what you're trying to manifest is a, a bigger house and a bigger car and more holidays and that kind of thing, you know, more Western consumption, see, want to take, 
I don't think that's going to be taking us anywhere useful. So that's why I've got my students on the, okay, I really want us to look at this. It's this, it's the fifth part of my six part process is setting clear intent. But my belief is that by the time people have got to that, they've connected, they've done the first four parts, they're connected into the web of life and what they're intending is, is in service to the web of life. If it's not, then I think it's an incredibly dangerous thing to be doing because it does work. But, you know, there are people dying all around the planet because we in the West are busy consuming stuff. And if what you're intending for is more consumption, then please don't. That was all I was going to say. No, I love that. And I love the fact that you've set that at the back with the other things preceding it. Um, Now, the other thing that I wanted just to pick up from what you'd said, which will lead us hopefully into the Thrutopian part that I want to talk about, is the Paleolithic mind. Um, I think you mentioned the way to to get the attention uh, of the Paleolithic mind. And this is something I think that my audience will be very familiar with, which is the power of story and being able to engage with the the consciousness um, in a way that doesn't work unless you're using story. Now, tell me a bit more about Thrutopia. I love the way that you talked about dystopia and utopia and this new genre. So if you could perhaps uh, tell us about that now, that would be brilliant. Okay, yes. And if I may, very briefly, this is another thing that arose from the shamanic practice. So summer solstice 21, I was leading an online because things I never thought I would teach shamanic stuff online. It's just not safe. But then the pandemic happened and we had to try. And there's this one course, it's the sixth of 10. And it's by far the scariest. And I thought I absolutely have to be in the room for this one because if anything goes wrong, I need to be there to fix it. But in the end, I had students in Germany and Switzerland and Ireland and they're all going, it's two weeks quarantine either side. We can't do this. Please just teach us what you can online. So, okay. All right. So I was do- leading the big journey of that weekend. And I sometimes journey while I'm drumming. But anyway, this time, and usually with shamanic practice, I'm sure you've you've experienced this by now, things are, don't arise in plain text usually. They come as felt sense, metaphoric images that that kind of unfold their meaning over time. And what happened during that particular journey was absolute plain text that I had to take. I had a 30,000-year-old fossilized horse's tooth that held one of part of the gate on the altar, take it up the hill on the land that I now live on, a bind, get some ethically sourced horse hide, that took me months, but anyway, ethically sourced horsehide and bind this tooth onto a piece of horizontal hawthorn um, from a very, very old, centuries old laid hedge, and then sit with my back to it facing southwest down the valley as the sun went down for an hour every night until further notice. Like that, that that's pretty, pretty darn plain text and very explicit. So you don't argue, you know, we've already been through that one. When you're given plain instructions, you absolutely do what you're told, even though you can't see why. So it did take me a month to get the horse's teeth, uh, the, the horse skin, sorry. Found it on, sat up the hill. And by the end of the week, I had two things. I had the outline for a novel and the, and the first scene of the novel and the concept of the Thrutopian course. And then, because I, I thought I'd given up writing novels. They're too slow. I was doing the podcast. I was doing so many other things that were getting ideas out straight away. And a novel... It can take years from the idea to the writing, to getting the thing published, getting it out there. It's just too slow. But what I realized or what I was, I didn't realize then, but the instruction was write write the novel. And I was having the conversations saying, do do you still want me to go up the hill? And they're saying, you can if you like, but you don't have to, you just have to write the book. 
because it was August. I was loving being up the hill, but I had already thought by February, this is not going to be so much fun. Um, so I still do sit up the hill. I've got to go back up quite soon, actually. But anyway, so I had the idea for the book and the idea for the course. And let me tell you a little bit about the book, because this will lead into where the course goes. So the first idea that I had was, or the first image the f was young boy sitting, he's 15, sitting by his grandmother's bedside and saying, when you come home, can we go up the hills and watch the crows go to bed in the trees by the river? Because that's what I'd been doing. It's amazing. And she says, no, I'm not coming home. I'm dying. You do know this. This is it. There is no coming home from here. And in the ensuing conversation, he says, you're the only one in the whole family that gets me. I do not want to live in a world without you in it. And she realizes he's serious and she says, I have no idea whatever comes next, but whatever it is, if you really need me and you call, I will come, I promise. And they both feel the gods kind of stop in their labors and look down and go, okay, that's a promise. That we have taken notice of. And then she dies. And then the whole of the rest of the book is told from her perspective, having to honor this promise. And the first thing that, not almost the first thing that happens after she's died is that night, the crow that's been sitting outside her window takes her into the void, which is a shamanic space. We don't need too much detail and teaches her to split the many, many, many timelines. And she sees half a dozen ways of he does kill himself. And the crow implies that you don't get to see the one over which you have agency. But if there is a gap, then you do have agency. So now you dead person has to go. And if you really want him not to die in any of these different ways, you have to see it not happen. And so she has to somehow she's dead she tries picking out pens and she can't she's dead she can't so she has to work out how to influence him so that he doesn't die and he doesn't and then his sister is conceived on the night of her funeral and then we do a jump cut to 15 years later his sister um sends a tweet which causes worldwide ructions and becomes the focus of a worldwide youth movement and at a certain point our dead person then of her own back goes back into the void, which is the most scary place I have ever been. So it's a pretty scary thing to do even when you're dead. Splits the timelines and sees, this is the bit that I really got up the hill, all of the potential futures where humanity crashes and burns really nastily, but there is that gap. So she knows that there is one, that this movement that's now coalescing around her family, how can she influence them to get onto this path, which is the path with hope. And then to write the book of, what does that path look like when we walk it? Because what I realized, what the course does, what the book is doing, what I want the new utopian genre to do is we don't need any more dystopias. We know how bad it could be when you cross Handmaid's Tale with the road and everybody is being kebabbed over piles of burning tires by their bigger and nastier neighbors. We don't need to be shown that anymore. And it doesn't work. Everyone who writes dystopias, you go, but why did you do that? You know, where you put your energies, where we go? And they go, well, if people see how bad it is, they won't go there. I think it, we've been doing that since Orwell. Actually, we've been doing that since Plato. It doesn't work. Neurophysiologically, frightening people by things that might happen in a future that they can't really see yet doesn't change behavior. It just doesn't work. You know, if you hold a gun to somebody's head, you can perhaps persuade them to do something. But if you say, if we carry on as we are with acidification of the oceans, runoff from industrial agriculture, microplastics, the seas will be dead by 2045. That's that's a straight line. The GOES paper has, the, the Rosalind Institute has published that paper. Nobody's changed a single iota of their behavior as a result. Because it's 2045. And anyway, I can look out at the sea and it looks okay. And there's a few fish just still to be caught. Why would I change anything? 
I'm still going to feed fish to my cat. It's not it. Everybody else does. So it doesn't work. Dystopias don't work. They're lazy and they don't work. Utopias don't work because there's always a jump cut. There's always a, and, and in one bound we were free and we all thought the same and we all began to create this wonderful new world that, and, and you can't see how to get there. So there's no point. So we need the narratives, the stories. We are a storied species. As you said, we tell ourselves stories. We tell ourselves stories before we move house, before we move car, before we get a new partner, before we get a new job, before we get a new puppy. We are telling ourselves stories of how amazing it's going to be and the fact that they never quite match up. You know, the triumph of hope over experience every single blinking time is what keeps us moving forward. Otherwise, we just stay static. You know, the, the inertia of staying with what we know is huge to get us to, you know, in the old days, get in a boat and sail across unknown amounts of ocean to a, a land that might not even be there. It's the power of story and the respect we will get from ourselves and our social connections as a result of this story is what keeps us moving forward. So we desperately need the stories of, that start exactly where we are and move us step by step in a way that we can see clearly and believe that we can do to a future that we would actually want. So I'm trying to write that book, which is ex incredibly so I can see why people do dystopias and utopias. That's dead easy. And uh, yeah, writing historical novels was a walk in the park compared to having to sit down and work out actually how could we get through. Um, but we need lots of people. We don't need just me. We need everyone to stop writing the old stuff at the point when the television producers find that they cannot get yet another rom-com that's predicated on see want take or yet another crime novel where everybody is driving around in big cars and you know the world is carrying on exactly as it was i had a friend who used to write for the soaps and he's he, time and again he would put in little things like you know they took out the recycling and the sub editors would just cut it and he'd say why why can we not even have taking out the recycling on? I, it wasn't Coronation Street, but let's pretend it was. And they said, because our income depends on the advertisers and the advertisers depend on people wanting a new granite kitchen every year. And you will not suggest to them that there is any other option. So, you know, my friend no longer works for that particular soap. But we need every single flipping soap to let go of the current paradigm and start looking at what might be the options and how might we get there. We need, you know, Game of Thrones no longer to be yet another obvious way in which dysfunctional humanity is dysfunctional again. We need things of that sort that are opening up people's ideas of what could be if we got it right, instead of demonstrating to us how often and frequently we our paleolithic emotions and medieval institutions cause us to get it wrong. And it's only going to happen if we all do it. So, so that's why we set up because what I realized was if I hadn't been running the podcast for three years by that point, I would have no clue. I wouldn't even know where to start doing the, the think. I would need a whole think tank imagining the ideas. So I thought, okay, let's set up a think tank of writers. I will get in the people who can talk to them about, you know, someone who's expert in transport and someone who knows about renewable power and someone who knows about flourishing regenerative design and someone else who knows about circular economy, someone else like economics politics, get all of these people in, and then it's up to the writers to join all those dots and create the stories. I'll stop now. I realize I've been ranting at you for about 10 minutes. Oh, that's brilliant. No, I love it. I was, I'm literally fascinated and hanging on every word because, it, you know, we've had a lot of people on here recently that have been talking yeah. about 
you know, environmental things and it's a thing of mine and something that I want to to do more of. And this is great that it's bringing it into sharp focus in, in relation to stories and how we can influence. Now, this particular podcast is aimed at speakers who are also storytellers. Yay. <laughs> do you believe that speakers have a role to play in bringing this into being? Totally. Yes. I, I, to be honest, I think every single one of us has, you know, the conversations that we have in the supermarket queue while we're waiting to pay are often as important and impactful as the ones that we give to an audience of 2000 people. But yes, honestly, get out there and talk about what could be if we got it right, which isn't just a continuation of what we're doing now. I think what I'm hoping we're able to do is our politics is dysfunctional. Let's stop working out how we can get the current system to work because there isn't time to do that. It's got too much inertia. It's too locked into promoting the kleptomaniac psychopaths. What happens if we just have a, a different way of governance? For, can, for the government, have a new government, have a different, you know, there is yet another of these phrases that's in circulation of it's easier to imagine the total extinction of life on earth than it is to imagine an end to predatory capitalism. So we just need to let go of that and start imagining what would the world look like if we found different ways of storing, exchanging and accounting for value than the dollar. And if we found a different way of behaving, then I need to amass enough of this tokens of value or I'm going to be living under a bridge, you know, in a cardboard box. What happens if that's not the case? What happens if we do things differently? And what does the differently look like? And everybody starts to abandon as of now your assumption that the world is going to carry on the way it is. Also abandon the fear of how it could get if we're all being kebabbed over piles of burning tires, because we don't need that narrative anymore. And start thinking of what could it look like if we got it right? What is it that I want? If I were to wake up in the morning 10 years from now with that heart open, expansive sense of awe and wonder, so that I stepped out of bed knowing that the world was okay. I was doing, I was being the best that I could be and doing what only I could do, whoever I am, each of the people listening, what only you can do the, in the best way that you can to bring about a future that you would be proud to leave to the generations that come after. They have records and they go, yes, that person, they made a difference. How does that feel? And, and for me, that feels a lot better than the, oh my God, things are going to be really bad. Because things are falling apart. You know, there is no way we can continue as we are. But that doesn't mean we have to head for the, the road meets handmaid's mm. tail. There are other options. We just need to collectively work out what our values are and how do we live by them and start doing it. Oh, that's brilliant. Okay, so I, there's some things that I read in your about. There's various abouts that you have in terms of the different sections of your life, perhaps, or, or aspects of your life. So I wanted to touch on a few of these things just because the terms fascinated me. I'm familiar with metaphors. What's a metaphorical kite and what ones do you have in the air right now? Oh, okay. Uh, metaphorical kites are the things that annoy my wife a lot. Um, it's when I it's when I when I throw out some ideas to see which ones stick. Really, see, throw up some kites to see which ones fly. Right. Um, so, Thrutopia was a kite. Accidental Gods was a kite. Those are the ones that stayed up. You know, the kites that don't stay up. I'm still trying to get a micro dairy going on the farm. Um, that's a kite that has not yet taken off, but I'm working on it. Trying to get a shamanic monastery together is, a, is one of my bigger kites. I have a WhatsApp group of people who would like to join. We just haven't figured out what, where, how, when. Um, but it's essentially, it's a regenerative farming community with a spiritual basis on which everybody has enough space that 
I don't do music. I really don't do music. So there has to be enough space that if other people want to do music, it doesn't impinge on my life at all or I'll get really cross. Um, so kites are, kites are ideas of things that might work that I throw out to see if they work. And some of them do and some of them don't. Excellent. I, I do a lot less than I used to because the podcast takes up so much bandwidth that my kite flying propensities are less. Although, yeah, podcast is a good place to try some of them out though, potentially as well, I suppose. Well, there is that too. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Another thing that fascinated me, and you've in- introduced in relation to the shamanic practices that you've talked about, this concept of, or not concept, I don't know if it's concept or a thing, of a dreaming circle. And I read that you said that the dreaming circle gave you more pleasure than your writing. I might have perhaps put that together wrong, but there was a very strong indication that that was such a powerful thing in your life. It is a powerful thing. Yes. Okay. So a dreaming circle is a group of trained dreamers who, so for me, shamanic dreaming is what I teach because there are a number of ways we can access the other realities. And, and I call them dreaming because I didn't want, and in the books, the Boudicca books, I call people dreamers rather than druids. That's where it arose from. I didn't want to use the word druid because it was too laden mm-hmm. with projections of, you know, looks with Klu Klux Klan outfits at Stonehenge at Midsummer. It's just, there was too much baggage associated with it. And it seems to me that one of the key ways, if we're not going to use plant medicines, and I don't, um, to access the other realities is through dreams, either waking dreams or sleeping dreams. So a dreaming circle for me is a group of people who, a group of trained shamanic practitioners all working with the same clear intent within the same energetic field, I would say. And when it flies, it's just amazing. Do you get the same dream at the same time? Can do. Um, Not always. I mean, this is, so for me, a dreaming circle tends to be an in-person. We're all sitting, I've got a a place relatively near where we live where they've got an actual roundhouse and we go and sit in the roundhouse and we set the same journey intent. And then we're all in the altar, engaging in the altar. And we can, we do sometimes have dreams where we meet each other and, and connect in the dream space. But it's more often we're having independent experiences but they're all of the same energetic tone with you okay cool so it's it's not we we don't often really collectively dream i think we probably could have really worked at it but we don't get together often enough cool okay cool that's that's i can imagine how uh how powerful that would be just being with each other as well as as anything else in that in that energy yeah and if you can imagine in our past in a tribal situation where everybody was living and breathing in the same roundhouse then i think um co-dreaming would have been a lot more common sharing dreams excellent okay i'm going to bring you back to more of the sort of writer stuff now um what do you believe are the essential elements of a story that can get people into action oh that's a good question you've got to engage so i think emotional literacy is for me, the big thing, you've got to feel invested in the story. You, you have to have a, a sense of really strong identification with one or more characters. And you have to want to know where they're going. So there has to be a degree of uncertainty. I think we, we talk a lot about the hero's journey. I'm sure you've talked about it in this podcast before. And Sharon Blackie talks about you know, that we're now in the era of beyond the hero's journey but i still think to be honest that that life is a hero's journey you know you're born and 
in the shamanic worlds we we have theories of what happens before you're born what happens after you die of of a kind of of a progression of um and one of my teachers says you've got your entire soul group around at the time you're born and they're all there because you're, you're going oh god no really do i have to do this all again and they're going yeah you can do it go on yeah go on it's gonna be great go on go on go on and <clears throat> kind of cheering you into life and then they're to welcome you out again at the end after death and go yeah see it wasn't that bad um or was that effect and so I still think that sense of potential social, the, the kind of serotonin mesh that we make when we abandon our search for do, little tiny dopamine hits, which are always transient and never quite what we want them to be, and get into that cultural social mesh of serotonin. I think that's what story gives us, is that sense of belonging, being belonging beyond, um, a sense of identity that takes us, lets us feel either parts of ourselves that we haven't already experienced or those parts amplified slightly to be, to show us our own heroic nature and then to show possibility. That sense of, God, yes, I mm. could do that. Whoa, that would be interesting. Um, and look, here's a, so I think that's identification, possibility and uncertainty of, but yeah, if I do that, what happens next? And, you know, story, we don't know that we're the only storied species. I would be very surprised if whales and dolphins aren't, but we are a storied species. Everything that we do, we do because of the stories we tell of ourselves, to ourselves, about ourselves, to other people and ourselves. We do stuff because we feel it's going to make the story of who we are shinier. So I think stories do that. Excellent. Thank you. And how we've spoken we've touched on fear um i wanted to ask you about a specific fear that stops a lot of people whether it's to create a talk or create a book or create anything you know create anything full stop um but particularly in writing how do you personally overcome the terror of a blank page do you feel it don't actually it's not this isn't a thing that i really have had to overcome because it's not a thing that i've experienced so um so I genuinely don't have an answer to that because it's not it's not part of my reality, which isn't to say, you know, I quite often get up and the book is, I suppose. So what I do if I'm at a stuck point with the book is I go and sit in the hill and ask for help. Um, you know, my my life is my shamanic practice and my writing arises out of that. And so there's never been a point where I didn't feel I had the capacity to ask for help and then and then the help arises and it doesn't mean it's effortless or right. I can, I can write myself down really nasty tunnels and I have to cut it all back. And, you know, the standard writing stuff of chuck away the last six weeks and start all over again. But you're always learning something from why did it not work? And therefore, why do I need to go somewhere else instead? So, yeah, no, it's not something that I really experienced. Right? It feels very it's... arrogant to say that. though. No, no, no. It's interesting because I think this this might explain it in some sense. So what I say to speakers is that they are a vehicle for the message. So that to get yourself out of the equation. And it feels to me, I don't know about yes. the crime novels that you wrote initially. They all had a message too. But it almost feels like you're a channel. Yeah. That that it comes through you. And in a sense, you are writing it, but you're not writing it. And certainly when I've been writing plays, I get into a point where I don't know where stuff comes from. I don't know. It's not something I would say, 
the characters it's it's a strange feeling when it happens but it's grand eh yeah but i mean i still have that that blank page thing to get over but i think it's potentially back to opening yourself up to be that channel and the stuff mm. may come through mm. i know it's fa- it's fascinating but that's the sense that i get from you is that it is almost all written <laughs> it's just channeling it through from the first you know intuition that you get yeah and then i, I yeah, once you've got to know the characters i can i can do a shamanic journey or or a dream or something with that character and go, I've got no idea where you need to go now. Just, but can you walk me through the feelings of it? And all right, I quite often, I, I write my book typing, but I quite often just sit with a notebook and a pen and just let the character talk to me and just write down whatever they're saying. And I can ask them questions. Why do you do that? Why do, why is that happening? And how do you feel about that? And they'll just and just watch what happens, you know, just watch my hand right across the page and go, oh, really, is that the answer? OK, that's fine. And then and then come and see how I integrate that. So the book becomes a, an exercise in cutting and paste. It's not really that. <laughs> that's not fair. It becomes me getting half a dozen different people's disparate things and trying to create something that flows out of it. Oh, I love that. It doesn't always work. <laughs> we did 17 redrafts of treachery. So, you know, I, I had a, an editing agent who made me throw away the, the contemporary thread twice and start again from scratch. So, you know, it's, it's not an effortless process no, by any means. No, goodness. And and so, you know, we we haven't really gone into detail about it, but you are a best-selling author, award-winning author. And we've kind of skirted over that in some senses, but I wanted to sort of wind up the these questions before we go into some, some standard ones with what, if you had to say what was the secret to writing a best-selling what book, what would that be? <laughs> I've got no idea. If I knew that, I'd be I'd be out there teaching writing classes. I don't know. I genuinely I th- and I think particularly now there was a point in the eighties, nineties where publishers had a reasonably good handle on how to sell books, and they had an idea of the ones they thought were going to be big, and they made them big. And once in a while, something surprised them. You know, Captain Corelli's mandolin just arose out of nowhere, and everyone, whoa, where did that come from? Um, now, because there's so many different modalities, and because publishers keep hiring twelve-year-olds to tell them how to navigate Amazon, and they, they don't actually know, or they don't listen to them, or it's there's too many variables. Nobody knows. It's so I used to say, and I still think, uh, you're not writing to write a bestseller. You're writing to get your message out into the world. If you're trying to write a formulate bestseller, although now I know there, you know, people who look at Lee Child and just basically, you know, do a search and replace in the common nouns, and are basically trying to write a Lee Child ripoff and they make millions. So, so it does work. Yeah. It's just not what I would do. Um, so I think. You can do all the research you like in the world, but the thing you can never do is write a higher level of emotional intelligence than you actually possess. So the thing that I would say to everybody is expand your emotional intelligence. But then you get books like Fifty Shades of Grey, which have no emotional intelligence at all. And the writing is just desperately bad and they sell more copies than anybody knew there were English speakers on the planet and uh, you know if that's what you want to do then emotional intelligence is obviously not it and I did have a friend who was taken on I think there was some kind of reality tv show I don't watch tv so I don't really know but um who to write a Mills and Boone and completely failed because she didn't believe it 
if you're writing Mills and Boone, you have to be at that that level of emotional intelligence that that exists on that plane. You can't write down emotional intelligence either very far. So and and so the books I like are the ones that I think are extremely emotionally intelligent, but they probably aren't the best sellers. So I don't know. The honest answer is I've got no idea and I don't really <laughs> care um, because it's that's not the point. The point, I, I want lots of people to read this new book when it comes out because I want to change the world was a different thing and it has to get to the right people and it has to get to people who will get it. And that's probably not the same as selling 10 and a half million copies. Yeah. Well, but I do have editor editors, friends who, who kind of weep into their coffee over the fact that most of their acquisition meetings are... And how many YouTube followers have you actually got? And if the answer is less than a million, we're not going to take you on. Um, so the answer to writing a bestseller is probably to have a YouTube channel with 10 million followers and then get someone to ghost your book. <laughs> so you don't actually even have to write it. You just put your name on it. Um, so, so I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. It's a, it's a Interesting. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, what I love about you is you are refreshingly honest as well. So that's really, really nice. Okay, cool. Before uh, we go into uh, sharing where people can find out more about you, more about accidental gods through Topia and all of that good stuff, I have some standard questions. I know we've been running for a while. Have you got a few more moments just to cover those? Sure. Yeah, yeah. My, my time is you. your time. Yeah. Um, first of all, I'm assuming you speak, you've mentioned it. What's the best thing that speaking has done for you? The podcast is... Terry Pratchett once said that writing is the most fun anyone can have on their own with their clothes on or something. I think podcasting. Actually, I love writing, but my goodness, podcasting, just because it's immediate. You know, this could be out mm. tomorrow. If, if this were a conversation that we had to turn into a book and it had to go through a standard publishing process, it'd be 18 months. It'd be completely out of date. Podcast, the po I love doing podcasting. I can talk to people I really respect and find really interesting and I can ask them all the questions that I want to know the answers to. And they answer. It's it's like yeah. a miracle. So yeah, podcasting, I Brilliant. love it. Okay, cool. And in your in your life, have you ever been on stage or had a, an interview or something like that that went wrong that you would prefer to forget? Is that, has that ever happened to you? Gosh, if it has, I've probably forgotten it. I mean, I, I used to do lots of yeah, the book tours, and then I ran the Historical Rights Association for a while. So and we did the Harrogate. I, I'm not remembering anything desperately bad. I, I I can remember in the old days where I would be asked to chair panels and it would be getting really sludgy and I'd be sitting there thinking, I have no idea how to rescue this because I just, you know, I'm not gelling. The, the whole panel just isn't gelling and how can we do it? And then you have, just have to find the question that resonates. A, a, you're sitting in the middle as a chair, you have two people either side. Find a question that they can each come alive for. And that's that's a really instinctive thing. You were talking earlier about follow your instinct. So I think the capacity to just stop for a moment and go inside and go, okay, what is, where, where does that sense of juddering become still and alive? And then just like you said with writing the plays, sometimes you write stuff that you've no idea where it came from. I think letting letting the words come out that you don't know where they're coming from, and see what happens Absolutely. is. It takes quite a lot of courage when you're in front of a thousand people, but um, you know it's still essential to do that and being real. I think as long as you can be real on a stage, that's that's yeah, definitely. I think one of the things that I say, and this is 
you know, so important, which is letting go of scripts, letting go of slides, letting being connected mm. to the audience in the same way, you know, this bigger connection to the, mm. but if you can connect to the audience and be present with them, then the answer will come, yeah. you know, so, but it's just not going into your head and, and all of that other stuff. But um, yeah, cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Now, this is going to be a tremendously difficult question I expect for you, um, which is what is the book that's had most impact on your life and why? Hey, hey, hey. Well, I guess Eagle of the oh, Ninth, yeah, we go right yeah. back to that because it it was life changing. It really was. I, you know, that probably. But since then, my gosh, there's so many books. I, I mean, honestly, I find a new book so often. I go, oh, this is it. This is the you know, Wolf Hole. I, that was such an astonishing book. Everybody thought that you know the Tudors were done. Everything that could possibly be in it. Let's not have another Tudor book because there is nothing left. Oh my goodness, look at this. It's every sentence of that book was a miracle. How did you write that? That's just extraordinary. So, so that book, I, I recently discovered Natasha Pulley, The Kingdoms is just, oh gosh, it's such a good book. Um, and all of her books actually are, are amazing. So uh, that would be really That's hard funny. to say. Well, I don't know. Yeah, other than Eagle of the Ninth, which, and, and the thing, I wrote Eagle of the Twelfth much, much later because actually what we discovered is that the Ninth Legion did not lose its eagle. I, when Rosemary Sutcliffe wrote that in 1950 something, the thought was that, that it had. But later, once I got really into Roman history, and the Ninth didn't, but the Twelfth did, but they got it back. And that was such a gift to a novelist. So, because the thing about the Legions was 5,000 men to a Legion. If there were 4,999 4, men, but you lost the eagle, the Legion was disbanded. And they, they all got sent somewhere else. But if there was one man and the eagle, then then that legion wow. continued. So the eagle was, was you know, it really mattered. So so the 12th did lose their eagle for a couple of months, but they did manage to get it back. And that was, I loved writing that book. So, Gosh, so yeah. that must have been yeah. such a, having had the impact of the, that eagle of the ninth and then being yeah. able to write that, that must have yeah. been some sort of loop closing in some sense as well. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. It Excellent. Was. Okay. Thank you for that. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, penultimate question. What's the best bit of business advice you've had and why? I'm slightly nervous to ask you this question, to be fair. <laughs> I don't have any business. Nobody's ever given me business. I, I was a vet, you know, and I wasn't, I was an academic vet at Cambridge and then Dublin and then the HT. I never indulged in business in my life. So and now we're not really running. I mean, I guess they are businesses, they're limited companies, but I know nothing. I'm I'm completely financially dyslexic. I, I hate doing admin. I hate spreadsheets. I, you know, all of that stuff, I just run away from as fast as I can. Uh, if somebody else didn't do it, it wouldn't happen. So um, I don't know that anyone's ever given me any business advice. And if they did, I didn't recognize it as such. That's all right. Sorry. I think I, I might, based on what you said all the way through this interview, if you don't mind me jumping in there, something that I'm going to take from you, which I don't do often enough, is to ask the question, ask for help and wait for the answer. Because mm. I think so many of us don't do that. Um, we like to think yeah. we're special, isolated uh, we just don't tap into that. So I think if you don't mind, I'm going to co op. No, no, go for it. Excellent. Yeah, feel free. <laughs> okay. Last question. If you could have one mentor and they could be alive or dead, fictional or non fictional, 
who would you choose and why? Wow. Oh, that's that's such a good question. Fictional or non-fictional? Oh my goodness, there are names sprinting through my head. Um, so where am I wanting to go would be the question. So if we're heading for the Threetopias, I I need notice of this question. I'm I'm honestly this there. I, it's like a rolodex running through my head. So that so the first name that came up was Tecumseh, who was a Native American leader. Um, who who it doesn't matter. But the story of Tecumseh is extraordinary. Um, Boudicca, obviously, I would really really like that. Or actually, what I would like is is a fictional character of my own creation, who is Ermid. But Ermid is a uh, a dreamer and she's affiliated with Nemen. So actually what I would really like is Nemen, who is the god of the moon. Like you might say goddess. I don't I don't have gendered gods, but um one of the gods really I would want as a mentor. Okay, so what's really coming as I sink into that a little bit more deeply is that every morning I do my uh morning ceremony and I I work in a circle of eight directions, but we come to the center after the first four and then again for the 10 and who I greet then at the moment in that center point of the 10 is is nameless but is the spirit at the core of the web of life wow and that is my mentor at the moment that is if I could have really plain text conversations with that entity that's that wow. it feels like that I love that I think any of those would be amazing but that's that's fantastic <laughs> Brilliant. Amanda, thank you so much for sharing your journey. Thank you. Sharing everything that you're up to and the big picture that you are holding for the world and trying to you know make happen. Appreciate that. Where is the best place for people to go to find out more about the various things that we've discussed? Um, probably Accidental Gods. Will you put the link in the show notes? I will do, HTTPS, yeah. accidentalgods.life. Mm-hmm. Throughtopia is throughtopia.life. Um, those two, I think, are, and, and Accidental Gods is the one that is most, it, it's an ongoing program. Whereas Throughtopia, you can download all the videos and things and you can come and join us. Please feel free. We have an ongoing meeting once a month. Um, but the actual, it was every other Sunday for six months, which was extremely hard work. So I'm not doing that again this year. I might do it again later. But but uh, yeah, at the moment, all the backlog of stuff is there and you can come and join the ongoing process. But Accidental Gods membership is alive and we we have a meeting every month for the intention intensives so yeah otherwise i'm on twitter i'm on mastodon which is lovely and much nicer than twitter um and i i kind of flip it i'm doing a a dog training online course which is based on facebook so i'm kind of on facebook but i don't really like the big social media no it can be quite uh well, it can suck you away from doing the things that can make a difference in some senses. So, yes, you have to use them sparingly. But thank you so much. I'll put all the links in the show notes. And is there anything else that you feel that you want to say in order to call this interview complete? No, I think we've we've touched everything. It was such a good interview. I love your questions. Really, Sarah, it's been, it's been fantastic. Thank you for the opportunity. And um, thanks to the listeners for being there. It's always good. Well, thank you very much. Really had a a brilliant time uh, talking to you. So thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Well, that was a long one, but fascinating. I could have spoken to her for ages longer. Just so much to ask, so much to sort of dive into. Um, What did you think? Did you get your buttons pushed in some way? 
If you want authentic, then Manda is it, completely herself, takes no prisoners, calls it as it is, which I love. <laughs> I found it fascinating, as I said, and I love the idea of the throughtopian writing. You know, and I it's I think speakers do have a role to play in making these changes and telling these stories. I work with writers, copywriters, authors to create signature talks and writing and speaking requires some differences in approach but I do think that speakers using this through topian genre as I said can have a big influence and make some positive changes in the world in the areas of work that they do and I think this is probably another episode that you're going to want to listen to more than once I know I will um what was your biggest takeaway your biggest aha if you got something from the show, then I'd love to know. And I'm sure Amanda would be fascinated to hear what you got from it too. Um, so do go and say hi to her. She is on, on LinkedIn. I think she's on Mastodon. We've got the links in the show notes to that as well. And do check out Accidental Gods podcast and membership. And the links are in the show notes for that as well. And obviously, go and check out her books. I bought the first Boudicca novel on the back of this, and I'm really looking forward to getting my teeth into that and finding those clues in the books to help me with my own journey to getting closer to my intuition. Uh, yeah. And if obviously, if you want to create a talk that uses more stories, then do also check out my masterclass, which is coming up soon. It's live, it's interactive. And in that workshop, you're going to get a blueprint for creating your signature talk. You know, one of those transformational ones we've been talking about. And this is going to be particularly useful for you if you are a business book author looking to create a keynote to promote the book, or indeed if you're an expert or coach who's struggling to share your message in an engaging, inspiring and motivational way. And you can find out more about that and grab your spot at saraharcher.co.uk slash masterclass. Well, that's it for this show. Thank you so much again for choosing to listen to The Speaking Club. And if you do get value from the show, then I'd be so grateful if you take a couple of minutes to leave an honest rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC or whichever platform you're listening on. That would be great too. And indeed, just if you bump into someone, they want to improve their speaking, then head them over to the podcast. And I will catch you next time. But until then, you know what I'm going to say. Don't forget to go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye bye. One of the things that I teach you on my masterclass has been a game changer for lots of people. The trouble is, that we're often too close to our thing to present it in the way our audience needs to see it and hear it to get the results that we want. That's where this powerful live interactive masterclass comes in. I'm going to be taking you through my proven six-step heart map blueprint for creating powerful authentic talks and content using stories that connect with your audience and get them into action. Here's some feedback from previous attendees definitely a value-packed two hours for anyone wanting to engage with their audience. Well worth signing up for Sarah's Masterclass if you want to make your content connect with your audience. Recommend it massively. Best two hours I've spent all year. I know your time is precious 
That's why I guarantee that if you don't leave this masterclass knowing exactly what you need to include in your next talk to get more engagement in sales, then I require you to ask for your money back. Grab your space to work with me on your talk at the next masterclass over at saraharcher.co.uk slash masterclass.